Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 52nd edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei. Today, Sharon and I are tackling a subject that has evolved rapidly over the past several weeks. The topic is the Sony hack, you can't keep the barbarians outside the gate. Sharon, you want to start us off? Sure thing, John. I think we've, we have to go back in time a little bit and provide our listeners with a little history. Yeah, you and I just uh, made a trip to Spain where we went to Toledo, which was formerly the capital of Spain. And it was fascinating to see that it was located high on a mountaintop, a very steep mountain, and largely, not entirely, but largely surrounded by a river and very easy to defend. So in the digital world moving forward, I guess in the 1990s, which was our olden times of cybersecurity, um, we tried to do the same kind of a thing. We thought we could build that kind of mountain and 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 just sort of surround ourselves with the equivalents of rivers and moats with antivirus software. And it actually worked fairly well for a while, and then it stopped working because the bad guys had moved on to other attack vectors. John, maybe you could explain how we moved from antivirus software to anti-malware enterprise suites that had the power of heuristics included. Like you said, in the olden days of the 1990s, 1980s, um, you had antivirus software because that's really all that you had to deal with was uh, viruses, trojans, those kinds of things. Then the attack vectors changed. We started to get phishing attacks. We started to get spyware attacks and malware and drive-by downloads and browsers and all that. So now you had your antivirus software. You had your anti-phishing software. You had your anti-spyware software. You had your anti-everything software. (laughs) And it just, you had all these separate products. So what happened is that the security companies, security vendors, the semantics of the world and the web roots and, and the trend micros and those kinds of folks, they began to develop and mature their product line so that it included all of those features and functions into a single product instead of having you know, one from one company and one from another company and a third one from somebody else. So we ended up with what's, what's called internet suites or enterprise suites today that include anti-malware generally functionality, firewall capability, uh, intrusion detection, uh, those types of uh, features, it, it, the packages now, the suites, they monitor traffic both inbound to your network as well as outbound from your machine. And that's in case your machine actually gets infected and starts sending data out without your knowledge. Um, so the, the security suites now watch for that. And they basically have built-in heuristics. So they're looking for characteristics and things that are happening to the network traffic and to the computer activity that would be indicative of some sort of infection. And they really don't care what that kind of infection is. It's bad stuff at at the end of the day. So you can kind of think of it as, you know, if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, it must be a duck. Well, if it acts like malware and sends data like malware, it must be malware. (laughs) So they they pop up these messages uh, and say, well, this particular application is doing something that it probably shouldn't. Do you want to allow it? We've blocked it for now. Uh, Yes or no. So those are the kinds of things and features. So it's actually a good thing that we're we're now dealing with with Internet Suites. Uh, in that 
it has all of this great robust functionality. And the other good thing is, if you recall, Sharon, back in the older days, a lot of folks were a little apprehensive about antivirus software because of the resources. It would bog down your machines like crazy, um, and they just didn't want to have it, so they would, invert, they would turn it off so that they could actually get some work done. Uh, and we don't, we don't see that really all that much today, even with the Internet suites, even with the added functionality that all the software is doing for us. It really doesn't bog the machine down at all. You really don't feel it. Yeah, it's a pretty amazing development, and it's still working pretty well. Um, they can stop, I think, most of the barbarians is at the gates. But as we've come to realize, if you're attacked by a sophisticated and determined hacker who's specifically targeting you, uh, the likelihood is that the hacker is going to get past the gate. Oh, and yeah. that's that's how we've come to this this new theory of, of the the old mantra was keeping them out, and now a new mantra is, okay, let's try to keep them out, but the new mantra is detect and respond. So now, assume they're in, and increasingly, the detect and respond mantra can mean different things, because sometimes you don't want to shut the attack down right away, because sometimes you want to watch the intruder, and you want to learn what data may be compromised, what accesses and credentials may be compromised, and perhaps you're trying to get clues to the identity of the hacker. So at this point, you've probably called in some digital forensic experts and the FBI. Uh, it's not a fun time. I mean, they, there's a reason they call that the upchuck hour. Uh, but, but by and large, you're now going to be taking orders rather than giving them because the experts from both the digital forensic side and law enforcement know more than you do about how to proceed. So, John, talk a little bit about the data loss prevention and intrusion detection system software. Well, they're, just like the, the security suites, there are products that are available that watch what's going on, and it may be totally valid stuff, but data loss prevention software takes a look at even content uh, of information that's being sent. So you may have an employee, as an example, that's, that's sending uh, information to their Gmail account or whatever, and perhaps they're, they're the one that shouldn't be doing that. Or they're, they've connected a device up to the network, and now they're copying off all of this data to this flash drive. And it's quite a large amount of volume that happens within a short period of time. So DLP software is kind of watching those kinds of things and saying, wait a minute, why is this one person doing that when they really shouldn't be doing that? Um, intrusion detection uh, watches it from the outside in. So has someone come in and t- taken a look at it? Do we have uh, credentials being used? Uh, from the exterior that are also being used, let's say, at the same time, interior. So it, it takes a look at those kinds of things that are there. But probably a, a bigger growth in area that we're seeing is what's called SIM products, and that's spelled S-I-E-M, which is Security Information and Event Management. And what these products do is they they aggregate and they try to correlate all of the logging that's occurring between all the network devices. So you've got logging, let's say, happening on your server and a logging happening on your router and then one happening on your firewall um, and, your, and your database has, has logging enabled. and It has all of this log, this massive amounts of data that's going through and it would be kind of crazy for a human being to sit there because it's after the fact as well, taking a look at what all those logs are. So the software correlates all of that data together and sees what's happening and tries to draw what normal activity is and what is not normal. And when it runs across something that's not normal, you can configure it to do a couple of different things. Maybe just alert somebody, but it can actually take action. 
So it can actually manage your events. So if there's data being uh, attacked or data being compromised or being lifted or whatever it is, it can actually shut down those ports or shut down that connection automatically uh, and do all of that stuff. So we're seeing more of a, a move that way just because we have all of this massive amounts of data. And it's more, um, it's, a, it's a, almost a real-time, if you will, uh, activity that, that's occurring there to, to watch what's, what's happening and try to protect the assets of the, of the corporations. How expensive is this stuff, John? I mean, are we now talking about software that's only really going to be used by large law firms and large businesses? The, the DLP stuff and the, and the IDS kind of software, you can, you can get into that game for uh, as low as uh, several hundred dollars up to a few thousand. Uh, SIM products tend to start at several thousand, you know, two to three thousand dollars and then, then go up from there just because they're, they are very powerful. And um, certainly the more expensive SIM products are the ones that have that can support a lot more product, you know, a lot more uh, manufacturers' devices, a lot different logging type systems, that kind of stuff. So I'm guessing that what's happening with this new software is that where it's been implemented, you can probably stop most of the bad guys at the gate. Would you agree with that, John? Yeah, m- most of the relatively unsophisticated, as you said. Well, that's what I mean. Know. The the, yeah. the the script kitties. Um, oh sure. Uh, you know the cyber criminals, which constitute sixty percent of the attackers. Um, n- most of them are not all that sophisticated. They tend to be people who take advantage of well-known attack vectors and well-known vulnerabilities. So what they're doing really is not sophisticated at, at these advanced persistent threats, which is you know kind of a term that people laugh at because they're usually not even when they call it that. But the real advanced persistent threats tends to come from state-sponsored hackers as a rule. Um, so let, let's let's talk about a current example of an attack that that has been certainly in the news, and in fact every day. John, can you explain what we know about the Sony attack, how Sony was attacked, and why we first believed North Korea was behind it, and now we're coming around to the view that well, maybe it was an inside job. Well, yeah, there's a lot of information that's been coming out recently about about the attack. Uh, there was a, I think one of my best, I think, um, synopsis of, of what may have occurred is is a, uh, a blog post that uh, Bruce Schneier, a noted uh, <clears throat> security professional, uh, had posted up there. And he, he posed several different possibilities as to what may have happened. I think if the, the listeners aren't aware of it, they should be aware of it, that uh, Sony's network was infiltrated and a lot of their data as well as their corporate data, um, human resource stuff, a lot of internal uh, information as well as films and, and all those types of things, uh, corporate email, uh, all of that stuff was lifted. It was terabytes worth of information that was taken from, taken from Sony in a very short window, a very short period of time. But Bruce Schneier has the possibilities that he put out there uh, is that, one, it was an official North Korean military operation because we already know that, that uh, North Korea has extensive cyber, cyber attack capability, or it may have been the work of North Korean nationals, some of which are politically motivated, but there was nothing really special or sophisticated about the particular hack that would indicate that the North Korean, that it would rise to the level, if you will, of a, of a government attack. Um, in fact, you know, as he stated, there's proof that they were re- reusing old attack code, and normally that's a sign of a conventional hacker being behind it. 
Another possibility is the the work of hackers who had no idea there was a North Korean connection until they read about it in the media. And I, I think that one's kind of kind of funny. In other words, Sony got hacked. Then they, then they say, oh, wait a minute. But we've got this movie called The Interview that's about North Korea coming out. Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take credit for that. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting proposition. That, and that, that could be true. Um, it could have been an insider, such as uh, like Sony's Snowden, who, who orchestrated it. Uh, the latest uh, discussions are about whether or not it was from a disgruntled ex-employee. And that's a possibility, and we'll, we'll talk a little more detail about that in a little bit. Or another possibility is initial attack was not a North Korean government, what was co-opted by the government. In other words, somebody else initially did it, and then the North Koreans said, oh, this is a great idea, let's jump on this bandwagon. Um, I think the most telling thing, though, that, that Bruce puts out there is because of all the, the information that we're, we've heard over the last several weeks, we're not really sure any one of these stories you know, could be the, the explanation of what occurred. But the FBI is still insistent that North Korea was involved. North Korea is responsible for, for this, this, uh, this data breach at Sony. But that's about it. Uh, the one interesting thing that Bruce points out is that perhaps that's because the FBI has some classified information that it doesn't want to let out. <laughs> and that could be true. So they have something that they don't want uh, anybody to know that they had the capability to. I mean, let's face it, you know, all the way back from the Korean War, the United States has been trying to infiltrate the communications, right, of, of North Korea. Uh, and maybe they've been successful in doing that, and they don't want the world to know that they're, they have that capability. So there's a lot of different— Either that, John, or they're flat wrong, and they're never going to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> I, and, you know, it could be either. Roll the dice. It could come up any, uh, any number at all. Um, I, you know, you can't believe anything the government says anymore. So you really don't know. I mean, they may know something and they may be holding an ace in their sleeve and, and you just don't know. That, that's true. But, you know, that, that brings another the question to mind, though, that once you've detected the, the attack that it's occurring, and you, you mentioned some things uh, recently about this, you may want to watch it or whatever, but what are your thoughts about how, how Sony responded to it? Well, you know, I, I know a lot of people came down hard on Sony, but I'm not going to do that. I think they were genuinely scared that an act of terrorism would be committed against a theater showing the interview. Um, I can empathize with that. And after the their partners, the movie theaters, started bailing out on showing the movie, I think that tied their hands a bit. And now they had to deal with appeasing partners who were frightened. And, and you know, th- obviously it didn't look like Sony security was very good. Um, and, and, then, and then there came those rowdy Americans all fired up about their rights. You got to love us when we get riled up. And we got riled up real good. Uh, so the pushback was enormous. <laughs> and it came from, from the top. It came from the president. It came from the press. And it came from the public. Uh, I was glad to see it, number one. And I was glad... Sony listened and reevaluated its response and, and released the film. But I am reluctant to be too critical because a theater full of dead people would have been a PR nightmare. Oh, yeah. And I know at one point they thought that that was at least a possibility. Um, and, and I think that that's what they first reacted to was, was that uh, they did end up doing the right thing in the end. And I'm happy for that. Well, this is normally the spot in our show where we hear words from our sponsors. This potentially represents a unique opportunity for you. Digital Detectives is seeking sponsors. You can hear your advertisement right here. If you're interested, contact the team at Legal Talk Network at info at legaltalknetwork.com.
Welcome back to the Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is the Sony hack. You can't keep the barbarians outside the gate. Obviously, we have decided that is true. You cannot keep them outside the gate. So let's let's press onward. The Sony attack was called an act of cyber war by a lot of people in the press, and it was called cyber vandalism by President Obama. Here's my take on that. God forbid we get a true cyber warfare attack, and a true cyber warfare attack is by definition one that has military objectives, and that generally means crippling essential infrastructure of a country, and it might often involve the loss of human life, uh, hospitals, etc., being impacted or trains not running correctly, who knows. The Sony attack, I think people just whipped it up and labeled it cyber warfare probably to get headlines that were self-serving. And I think the president was right when he used a more correct term here of, of cyber vandalism, which is more like what this was. Um, the follow-up question to the recent series of events is, Is John, did you see any evidence that the United States was behind North Korea's recent Internet outage? Or did that seem more like a, a hacktivist attack to you? Of course, they claimed we were behind it, uh, well, but yeah. they, would, they, they would make that claim as a knee-jerk reaction no matter what. Well, you know, the, the information that I've read and, and seen essentially says that the, the North Koreans uh, – Internet infrastructure is, is fairly weak, if you will. Um, it's it's really limited to uh, the more elite, the, the the military, and those that are in power within the country. The common people don't use the internet in, in North Korea like we do here in, in this country. So uh, there is a, it's not as widespread. There's certainly a lot of uh, you know censorship that's going on, a lot of control of the information that that goes on there. So I don't. Uh, was it a hacktivist attack? Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe it was somebody just trying to, to flex their muscles and, and put a you know denial of service attack upon North Korea's internet. But I don't think there's any any evidence that uh, the U.S. was involved at all in that uh, in that in that attack. In that, it was really their their internet infrastructure couldn't hold up to. Uh, anything, certainly not anything that major corporations in this country could hold up to. So it was kind of fragile. And I think that's kind of why it, it, it buckled and then was slow in coming back. Well, that might have been, but it was interesting, of course, that the president said that we would respond in our own time uh, in a measured yeah. way. Uh, that kind of, yeah, I think that kind of led into the maybe the U.S. did this in a, a measured way, but it, it didn't seem to me to have our fingerprints. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know. But, you know, and you've heard, I, I think, the, the recent news, too, though, that uh, did the FBI really get this right? Was it really North Korea? But the um, other security companies now have been researching the data and looking at it all the way back from, let's say, Thanksgiving, pre-Thanksgiving, uh, going through this. And one of the more, uh, the bigger news came from uh, a company called North Security, and they actually had a, a brief debriefing with the FBI yesterday on this very thing. So it's really recent news. But what they discovered was that they this whole deal, where I believe it's it's kind of going to start going down this road is you've got an insider at Sony that was responsible. Um, what they did was they looked at HR data, and they looked at how many people and who was fired in the April-May time period uh, in, the spring of of in spring of 2014, and who would have had the tools and the skills in order to pull this off. So they started from the premise that it really did happen from the inside. Just because the data breach 
was so short, so fast, and they got so much data so quickly. Uh, so it implied a lot of inside knowledge. When they looked at that data, they came down to one person. And that's why all, everything, all the news reports now are, are pointing to this one individual, an ex-employee that had very technical background. They then went and looked at other sources of that person and communications across the Internet. And they found access to IRCs, Internet Relay chat forums, other sites. Uh, and they were able to capture communications from this ex-employee with other individuals that were associated with underground hacking and hacktivists. So now the story is coming around to, well, maybe it really wasn't North Korea. Maybe it was this disgruntled ex-employee that um, is out there and began to uh, associate themselves with other known hackers from, you know, in Europe, from Europe and, and Asia. So that is one thing that, that occurred. But there was another company which I thought was interesting because the Guardians of Peace, and, and don't you love that word, right? That phrase, these are, these are the Guardians of Peace. <laughs> there could not be a name more dripping with irony than Guardians of Peace. Yeah, they're the ones that, you know, are responsible for this hack, and we're guarding your peace. Um, but apparently that there was a, another security company that took a look at all of that information and that communications that was coming from the Guardians of Peace because they claimed to be North Korean. And when they ran these different linguistic analysis of their online communications, it actually suggested that the people responsible for the communications were of Russian descent and not uh, North Korean and certainly not uh, you know, native English speakers or German or any of that, those types of things. So we have all these conflicting pieces of information now, but it seems like it's, it's really beginning to steer towards this, this ex, um, ex-Sony employee and uh, and her involvement in in this and uh, and this uh, there was a, a they also identified potentially six people, so her and five other people that were that were involved in this. So as time goes this, on, we're going to get more information. Do you think? Though. Do you think this might be one of those situations where they didn't appropriately close doors when they had a somebody who was fired and and they didn't take the proper measures to to lock lock her out? Um, I don't think it's so much that. Uh, and let me look here. One of my notes here. Oh, one of the things I thought was very interesting was that the Norse, research, Norse researchers, the ones I talked about earlier that found all these things, when they analyzed the malware that was used, the malware was very specific in, in target. So it was targeting and it was pre-compiled with the IP addresses for Exchange and Active Directory servers within Sony. Now, to have that's insider information. Normally what happens when someone infiltrates uh, a network they gain access to they, they, they pass the firewall they get, get some some users log on credentials whether it's through phishing or however they get there but they don't have any knowledge of the landscape and the infrastructure and so they begin doing what's called a horizontal move across this network looking for where are the servers where's this where's that resource do we have other routers here da, 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 da. and that takes months you know to map all of that stuff out but from when this attack started and this malware was deposited it already knew where it was going so that's another piece of information that points back to, hey, it was an insider because even this malware even had usernames, passwords, and digital certificates embedded within it in order to quickly gain access to the resources. Pretty amazing stuff, isn't it? <laughs> well, and, and that, but it tells you, you know, if you had a, a very uh, technical individual, and I don't know what their what her you know position was, but whether you're a network architect or whether you're a sysadmin or whatever, um, a lot of folks don't think to. You know, change the administrator passwords, change the the router passwords, change the 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 login you know credentials for Active Directory or any of those kinds of things. Um, so yeah, maybe to answer your question, maybe that was what happened. 
that they didn't go and change the stuff, uh, but maybe they didn't think they really had a problem or they had to. I think the whole turnaround from it's North Korea, definitely North Korea, we know it's North Korea, to uh, maybe it's not. <laughs> I, I mean, that to me is fascinating because that's one of the dangers of of escalating to a cyber warfare level um, when it's automated uh, and you don't really know the source. Uh, in that vein, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Monster Mine, John? If that doesn't scare them, nothing will. Uh, Monster Mine. Um First off, the great disclaimer, we really don't know if MonsterMind exists. Um, but MonsterMind was, was a revelation from the Snowden documents that were released. Basically, it's the, uh, the NSA's ability uh, to create a s- cyber defense system that instantly and autonomously neutralizes foreign cyber attacks against the U.S. Uh, but it can also be used to launch retaliatory attacks. So when Snowden was... Um, this was just right in development. At least the documents that he released say that MonsterMind was in development uh, and that it was being uh, talked about and begin to be programmed and whatever it is. But basically it, what it does is it scours massive repositories of metadata and analyzes them to see what's different from normal traffic. It's, it's similar to that, you know, the, the, the sim things I was talking about, right? Those different anomalies, but on a much larger scale. Uh, and then the system then would go out and just sort of shut things down or attack back. It's kind of like um, uh, synonymous if you rem- remember the movie uh, War Games with the Whopper and how the the thermonuclear war it was you know programmed to automatically launch counter strikes with the the you know the the nuclear missiles and those kinds of things. It's that same kind of thing, but from a c- cyber attack perspective. But but of course, as as anybody who saw that film would know, the Whopper was responding to a non-existent attack. Uh, he right. was responding to a game, global thermonuclear war, being played by a teenager, um, and and that's one of the concerns with any kind of technology like this. And I I think that um, if I read the piece correctly about the revelations by Snowden. MonsterMind was being developed to detect and terminate the threat, but it hadn't extended to the point yet where it was going to go on attack without human intervention. But that was clearly the direction that Snowden thought it was ultimately going to head, and that would take out the human element, and that would scare me because here we are in a position where we say, okay, this attack came from North Korea. We we may be wrong, um, but MonsterMind w- could theoretically, without human in- intervention, uh, pose a counterattack because we don't think we have time enough, and, and they want to take out what they think is the human error factor. But you know, the machines are only as good as their programmers, and so the machines can make a mistake too. And if if it looks like an attack came from one place and it really came from another, the machine might w- well make a cyber warfare error if it is capable of returning an attack. And just the thought of that is is paralyzingly frightening. Well, that that's exactly what Edward Snowden said. Uh, he he actually had a, an online interview with Wired magazine. Um, and he had two main concerns about the, the MonsterMind uh, project. One was exactly what you're talking about. He says that, that the, uh, an attack from a foreign adversary is likely to be routed through proxies, so it belongs, belonging to innocent parties. In other words, it looks like it comes from somebody else, but it's not really the originator. So if you automate those things, you're actually going to attack the wrong, you know, the innocent party, the wrong, wrong person. 
and, and, and in order to discover whether you're being attacked, you're combing through ridiculous amounts of data. You've got sensors on the Internet backbone. Yep. And whatever happened to the Fourth Amendment, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it's becoming a quaint footnote in history. And that bothers me a lot, too. Yep, that was, that was his second concern. Yeah, so. we, I think we read the same article, dear. <laughs> <laughs> or, li- or listen to his interview. <laughs> so any, any other closing thoughts, Sharon? You know, it's a scary game we're playing, and uh, uh, it, it does scare me because I don't think it's it's well thought out on, on the side of any state government. It doesn't matter who it is. I think we're all playing it with something that is fire, uh, and it's very dangerous. And so it makes me think of the Chinese proverb, or, or maybe it's a curse, may you live in interesting times. Uh, we do indeed live in interesting times, and I don't think we uh, have any magic bullets for what's happening uh, to all of our data right now and the threats that it presents. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on iTunes. If you enjoyed this podcast, please review us on iTunes. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and security services at www.senseient.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.